This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning and welcome to CounterPoints. Emily, thanks to you and Crystal for picking up the slack last Wednesday. How was the ladies' show? It was great. How was the fish show? Shows. The fish shows were wonderful. <laughs> uh, might be a little weepy today. Now, the, the re-entry is difficult, the yes. serotonin depletion, but I, I think we'll get through this. So You've got this. Yeah, if you do see a tear or two, it's, <laughs> I got some other stuff going on. Yeah, he's working through things. Yeah. All right, so we're going to have an interesting show today. We've got the results out of Michigan, mm -hmm. both in the Republican primary and in the Democratic primary. Uh, Democratic voters sent Biden a brutal message by with more than 100,000 of them telling them telling him they are uncommitted at this point. Republican voters sent Nikki Haley a pretty brutal message, too. Well, I mean, that's been an ongoing story for the last couple of months. Think she's going to get that message? She's I, I think she, I'm rooting for the comeback, ride. Right, she's well, the real underdog. Anything's here. possible. So yeah. we're going to we're going to talk about 2024 polling. We're also going to have updates on the negotiations toward a potential ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza war. Uh, my colleague Maz Hussein was on Jon Stewart this week, uh, talking, debating uh, Israel-Palestine with Yair Rosenberg. We're going to talk about that for a little bit. And what else we got? Uh, oh, we might have a shutdown. I think we will. shutdown by the end of this week. Yeah, we, I think we will have a shutdown by the end of this week. So we're going to go through. There's the, a bunch of clips from yesterday, people coming in and out of the White House. Speaker Mike Johnson, Chuck Schumer talking about uh, their perspective on uh, how to keep the government open. But it seems really unlikely that the government is going to stay open. So we'll break down some of those dynamics as they stand today, Wednesday. And we're really excited to have Gabriel Shipton back in, yeah, in here for an interview. Filmmaker and uh, Julian Assange's brother. He's in the United States. States uh, this week. He'll be in studio uh, last week, uh, as you guys talked about. Uh, Julian Assange had potentially his last extradition hearing over in the UK. The next step would be yanking him over here and throwing him into some maximum security prison for the crime of uh, publishing documents. 
Let's start, though, with Starbucks, Ryan. Yes, some huge news on the union front. So Starbucks uh, announced yesterday that it has reached an agreement uh, with Starbucks United, which is uh, the union that has been uh, going around organizing Starbucks coffee shops around the country. It has been, you know, one of the, uh, you know, most intense kind of battles between labor and capital that we that we've seen in the United States. Schultz, the CEO, uh, the founder of the company, just despises this union uh, with every fiber of his body. He takes it so personally. He does. And what we learned from the American Prospect, actually, uh, is that these negotiations uh, began after, and and I'd reported this in in The Intercept, that uh, Starbucks decided it was going to sue its union uh, for using a Starbucks logo while opposing the war in Gaza. So all of this actually started Mm. um, with with the Starbucks workers' protest against the war in Gaza. Those, that, that lawsuit then led to some negotiations between the union and the company. And over the last week, as the prospect reports, those negotiations evolved into actual talks about the union itself. And so the result, and from what we're hearing is that this is actually potentially more significant than it seems. The result is that the, there's going to be an agreement on a, on a, on an organized and fair process toward forming unions in Starbucks uh, coffee shops, and Starbucks is going to negotiate collectively with all of those shops, rather than what they've been doing is kind of individually trying to crush every union. And what I think this reveals is that Starbucks is recognizing, A, they have a huge image problem uh, in the wake of the Gaza war. Yes. And also that their workers are overwhelmingly in support of a union. So it sounds like, I mean, Starbucks is one of the more interesting union drives from my perspective, just because it also affects more than hundreds of thousands of workers in the United States, basically on every street corner Mm -hmm. in major cities and everyone's town uh, at this point almost has a Starbucks and last year, you know, lived in a pretty rural area. Uh, So... There's just a lot going on with the dynamics culturally with Starbucks. There are people in major cities. One of the reasons this was a great Jacobin interview from a couple years ago. People felt like they were being forced to work like untrained social workers uh, because of some of the new policies about bathrooms mm-hmm. that have since been rescinded. But uh, there's just, I mean, Starbucks workers have a very interesting, and I hate to use the word unique, but it is it is kind of a unique um uh, I guess, case to make for yeah. unionization. Meanwhile, relatedly, uh, a Mercedes plant in UAW, the workers there announced that they that more than 50% of them have signed cards asking to be, uh, to organize with the UAW. So the UAW uh, is absolutely on fire, just like rolling up these plants. And whether they can actually turn just over 50% of cards into a union remains to be seen. But it, it shows extraordinary momentum. Uh, the IG Metal, which is the maybe the biggest and strongest union in the world, a union in Germany, is going to pressure Mercedes and is pressuring Mercedes to be fair mm. uh, and, and to treat this, uh, treat this union drive fairly. Meanwhile, of course, uh, Chinese uh, EV cars are threatening to like destroy the entire American uh, auto manufacturing industry. Uh, so uh, you, you, we'll see if the UAW's kind of... Uh, 
revival comes a little bit too late. Well, Ryan, that's a great transition to the Michigan primary there election we go. results. Look at that. that yeah, it really, it really is perfect, <laughs> uh, especially with the electric vehicle point. Not just the UAW, but Real specifically the electric. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the fish, though the the wave of your that's right. That you're yes, so nice. the riding. jam really flowed. Yes. Yes. Uh, so in Michigan last night, Donald Trump won the Republican nomination, sixty-eight to twenty-seven percent. So sixty-eight percent for Donald Trump, twenty-seven percent for Nikki Haley. One of the big stories, though, although you're you're hearing a lot about it in the media this morning, is that 13% of Michigan voters selected uncommitted. So Joe Biden got 81% of the vote, 13% went to uncommitted. If you're doing the math there, uh, that's because also another five percentage points, as one of our great producers pointed out for us, went to Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson. So 100,000 votes, more than 100,000 votes, went to uncommitted. You add 22,000 for Marianne and 20,000 for Dean Phillips into the mix. And you're almost getting to one out of every five voters. One in every eight went for uncommitted, but Michigan is a state that Joe Biden barely won. Uh, I think it was around three points. He eked out a victory in 2020. Uh, so a huge battleground state for him. And if you're doing the math, Ryan, uh, in a primary election, which is generally low turnout, and in fact, 40% more voters turned out for Republicans than Democrats last night. So if you're doing the math for Biden come November, this is a very, very bad sign. We know that they were expecting uh, potentially a bad sign because they've dispatched uh, all of their aides, not all of them, but an army of aides to Dearborn, uh, and the Muslim American communities in Michigan. So they understand that they have a problem on their hands here. Uh, but I think that problem might be bigger than even they realized. Yeah, the low turnout is key because you have to combine the two things. Yes, 100%. So the, the 100,000 plus people uh, in, in, in Michigan turned out to the polls to vote uncommitted. Like yeah. they walked to their polling place, they got on a bus, they drove. Uh, they saw, In many cases, they registered that day mm. just to register the fact that they wanted to reject Biden, mm -hmm. that they were not willing to vote for Biden, a, a complete rejection of what they were being offered. Uh, the rest uh, that represent that gap of 40, 50 percent between Democrats and Republicans rejected the status quo by just staying home. Mm -hmm. And that hurts Democrats just as much in November. Mm -hmm. Ask Hillary Clinton what happens in Michigan when people are so unenthusiastic or opposed to your campaign that they just don't bother to show up yeah. on, on election day. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because I was reading uh, a news report, I think this was in the New York Times this morning about how, you know, if, if the Arab American vote swings 30% to Donald Trump in Michigan, it could be enough for Joe Biden to end up losing. They had a poll that showed something like that in the works, potentially a Times-Siena poll. But, but to your point, just talking about a swing towards Trump is wildly insufficient. I mean, turnout is mm -hmm. equally an important part of the equation there. So when you have 40% more Republican voters turning out the Democratic voters, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's not a great sign for yep. Joe Biden, who if you understand that there's a battle over uncommitted happening, you really want to make your mark for Joe Biden, you go turn out in the polls. Yep. So to have low turnout, even if it's you know a pretty obvious outcome, right? You know that Joe Biden ultimately is going to prevail, uh, but you would want to stamp down talk of, quote, uncommitted. You show up to vote. Yeah, and I think the, the bigger problem for the Biden campaign is that uh, they they and their enablers in the media harbored this genuinely kind of racist view that it was only Arab and Muslim voters that cared about this genocide going on. The idea that there is universal concern for women, children, elderly, uh, innocent people getting 
uh, getting killed is just kind of anathema to this increasingly, I guess, identitarian uh, politics mm -hmm. that has taken taken hold in the Democratic Party, where where you would have people saying, you know what, only two percent of the uh, the Michigan population is is Arab, so this isn't actually a problem. It's like, you really think that it's only Arab people that care about children getting killed by the hundreds every single day. And secondly, uh, because the way the census works, it's not 2%. Mm -hmm. uh, it's significantly more than 2%. But what, the, what these results showed is that racist assumption was utterly flawed. Basically, everywhere around Michigan, at least 10% of the electorate uh, voted uncommitted. Places that have close to zero Arab American population. Uh, now, in Dearborn and places like that, you saw absolute blowouts for uncommitted. But in, say, uh, Ann Arbor, uh, you had something like 30% of people coming out and voting uncommitted. So, uh, and we and can put these not, up on the screen, yeah, by the way. Up here. And, it's, it's, so it's, and it's also not just young people. You also hear uh, young people and Arab Americans. Like that, that is the way that people have generously started to expand it. Oh, yeah, you know, those, those soft hearted young people, they also care about genocide. That, that's also not true. Like you're, 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 the, the penetration of opposition to genocide is, is, ac is across the demographic board. Now, how many people are gonna come out and express that right. you know, varies, uh, but it, it's not just isolated. So yeah, and if you were just looking at that map, you saw again that Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson had more than forty thousand votes between them, in addition to the more than one hundred thousand votes. And those that are protest votes. Absolutely. No, nobody nobody walked into the polling place thinking that if they voted for uh, Marianne that she was going to win, or that they voted for Dean that he's going to become the nominee. It's it, that's sending a signal. And and both of those candidates were deeply frustrated that all of the kind of social media energy and the kind of public on the ground grassroots energy beca became organized around voting uncommitted. And no doubt, like back in 1968, you had McCarthy to vote for. Like it, it's, it's easier for organizers if somebody is running on a popular banner of peace uh, and it becomes the, the one that you're gonna vote for to send that signal. That's much right. easier. Yeah. But the, the population wants to express its democratic will and is gonna find a way to do it. Right. Often they find that way to do it by just not voting mm -hmm. and just not showing up. This gave people an opportunity to say, okay, I can actually show up and, and, and be heard and have my frustration against this shown. So let's put A2 up on the screen. Uh, this is some notable quote uncommitted slash no preference vote shares from Obama's uncontested 2012 primary. So again, this happened in 2012. Those were very low turnout primaries uh, because you know satisfaction with the candidate was a lot higher than it is with Biden. So Kentucky was at 42%. Michigan itself was at 11%. Uh, North Carolina, 21%, and then you had some other states, Rhode Island, Tennessee. People were organized, and Ryan, you probably covered that at the time. Um, mobilized enough people to come out to uncommitted to the point where it was 42% in Kentucky. Uh, but again, that was a totally different uh, context. And bigger raw numbers here. Yes. Like the, the, the number of well over 100,000 is the one uh, that, that, that they're going to have to take home. That, the, the satisfaction with Obama on behalf of Democrats in 2011, relatively high compared Although to. Well, Bernie was calling for uh, to his eternal kind of electoral chagrin was calling for a primary challenge to Obama because he was embracing austerity at the time. Mm -hmm. By the time of the election, he had gone into kind of populist mode, painting Romney as the plutocrat that he was. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the left was, and there was no primary challenge. So a little 
back behind that, but yeah. Yeah, it's not like everyone was, oh, Obama is this, you know, right. the savior of the working class, but it was, you know, dissatisfaction with- Mitt Romney. Satisfaction with Joe Biden is on a, yeah. dissatisfaction with Joe Biden's on another level in this case. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, pivot to this conflict that bubbled over on CNN last we, night. We knew that cable news was gonna have a, a measure, <sighs> uh, sober response to the Michigan uh, public declaring its opposition to the, this genocide, and they delivered for us. Let's, sure yeah, let, let's show a friend of the show, Nina Turner here, uh, walking into the lion's den and trying to actually talk substance uh, with a CNN horse race panel, and let's see how well that goes. And I think sometimes as we talk about this issue, we're making, we're centering President Biden. We are centering former President Donald J. Trump when the uncommitted effort is to center the people closest to the pain. And that is the Arab American community. That is the Palestinian community. That is communities that care about peace. And so while this president was in the ice cream shop saying, I think there's going to be a ceasefire, 30,000 people have been slaughtered. People are living in famine. They can't get medical care, so it can't come soon enough for them. And that was really the weight that I picked up on when I was in Dearborn. So we get to be comfortable and talk about this like these people are widgets when they are, in fact, suffering. And I am young enough to remember, colleagues, when Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and also Congresswoman Cori Bush called for a ceasefire very early on, they were called abhorrent. Now, fast forward to all of these bodies laying in the wake and people who are living through this every single day. By the way, there's also been slaughter in, in Israel I was going to well. say. So, I, so, yeah. so there, there's, yeah, no, there's a lot get, of pain on both sides. No, so I'm not. Really I'm not. I'm not. lecture on the problem. No, but I, I'm talking about yeah. the, the politics of this tonight. How, what to you would be a victory, as somebody who was calling yeah. for this uncommitted vote, what to you would be a victory tonight? Uh, to get that message across. I'm not denying that pain. All I'm saying that at a certain point after October the 7th, it becomes clear. I mean, you have a right-wing prime minister. Right. We don't need to read said, the issue. But, but you understand what I'm saying? I'm not denying anybody's pain. What I am saying is that this president and our country has the power to say to Netanyahu, we need a permanent ceasefire. The only time Within hostages. Reason, though, if I can the only, push back here, wait, I one more point. The only time hostages were released is when we had that brief ceasefire. That is another reason I, why I, 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 we I need a permanent but I, ceasefire. I also, I also have to remind people we had a ceasefire prior to October 7th. Well, that was uncomfortable. And in, let me just say something in defense of uh, Nina Turner there that people might not recognize. So, in that back and forth there, so. When Anderson Cooper jumps in, he's like, ho, 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 hold on. There's pain on both sides here. And then tries to move it back to the horse race. And he's like, give, give me your view of the politics here. And then she takes it back to the pain. Like, he gets, he gets upset with her. Like, hey, I told you to take this back to the horse race. But if, if she hadn't done that, you know, she knows that she's constantly getting hit as, uh, you know, host, hostile to Israel and maybe even anti-Semitic. Yep. And that if she didn't respond to that, then that would be the thing that people would hit her for. That's the story. So she has to then. So he 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 kind of forces her to respond to that, and then gets upset with her that when she does, you know, actually respond to that. But it's, it was interesting to see the panel just uh, so reflexively unable to even kind of think about the substance of the issue. Like, what is why are people voting the way that they did? 
Yeah, the uh, I don't we don't need a lecture on the problem line is come on not collegial. <laughs> so it tells me that Anderson Cooper must uh, have and, and that felt directed of, at the voters too, it, in a way. It, like like frustrated at the voters that they're like going to lecture about like the, and you saw people uh, getting saying that ah oh, these these like, voters and who want their moral clarity mm. like moral like. What, and what a lot of them are demanding is, is not actually that much. They're just saying, just call for a ceasefire. So on this point, we also have uh, an exchange between Jake Tapper and Debbie Dingle to roll. Let's watch that. And what is it? You have with about 16% of the vote in. So it's going to be a, a sizable, uncommitted vote. Um, is this a surprise to you in any way? And what do you make of this potential impact? Will the White House change course in any way? So, first of all, it's not a surprise to me. Uh, I've been telling people that. Uh, we have a campaign called Listen to Michigan with people that want to be listened to. But, you know, as everybody started acting surprised tonight or we're looking at figures, I said to multiple people over the course of the last month, Ann Arbor, my district, Washtenaw County, which has got Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, Everybody really ignores me when I say Ypsilanti, too. I bet have more committed votes than Dearborn. And as you're watching, I'm going to be right. And I expected it because it's not just the Arab American Muslim community. It's young people who, are, you know, want to be heard, are concerned, have the same concerns about they know what Hamas did was a terrorist act, but they are watching innocent civilians be killed in the kind of damage that's it, that's there. We've got to talk about that issue, but we've got to talk about a lot of other issues too. So actually sounding a little bit like Nina Turner from one of mm -hmm. the most moderate members, one of the most centrist members of the House of Representatives. Now, uh, Tapper doesn't shut her down, like Cooper shut down Anderson Cooper, I think because she delivered it in a way that was that that strikes you know your average CNN anchor as as being a different angle than uh, listening to Nina Turner, who's someone on the left. But if it comes out of the mouth of a centrist, it's exactly the point you were making, yeah. right? She's talking about Ypsilanti. She's talking about Ann Arbor. She won a bunch of credibility too because she was the person in 2016 who was you know most yes. loudly yelling at the Hillary Clinton campaign, like telling, Michael Moore, telling them that they, that they were misunderstanding what was happening in in Michigan and that they were on the brink of losing it. And she was doing that publicly enough that when it actually came to pass, everybody was like, oh yeah, Debbie Dingell was saying that. Mm -hmm. So now when she talks uh, and makes an electoral argument, uh, people listen. One of the kind of, I think, hard to swallow pills for people is that is the Biden line that comes out where he says, well, this is not about electoral politics. This is about doing the right thing. <laughs> it's like, well, th that's almost worse. Yeah. Like the idea that you, that you think, that you look at your handling of this assault since October 7th, and you look at the 30,000 dead, plus, you know, there were, there was just recent projections that, you know, you're looking at, even if there's a ceasefire right now, you're looking at tens of thousands more. Uh, you're looking at uh, the, the Israeli civilians in coordination with the IDF, setting up bouncy castles and having, having carnivals outside of the fence into Gaza, and at those carnivals, protesting and blocking aid from getting in, while children are, have now gone from the brink of famine, the brink of starvation, to actually starving to death. And so you look, you, you look at that and you say, you think you're the one who's 
ignoring electoral implications and doing the right thing, uh, then, then you are a, a moral creature of like such dis disrepute that we don't mind seeing you lose. The sanctimony. No matter what the consequences are. So um, another note, I mean, again, Debbie Dingell was talking about this not being isolated to Dearborn, and that was a point that you made, Ryan, which means that this translates outside of Michigan. Yes. Uh, that's a really important They're point. They're moving to Minnesota, like Minnesota's next, and you're going to see people pushing to vote uncommitted in, or, or whatever. I don't know the exact what you can vote on the ballot. Michigan has the uncommitted line, but in Minnesota, they're going to be pushing for something similar. You know, New Hampshire, uh, they've said right in ceasefire. You know, you have to do you have to do something different in every state because we've got these federated electoral systems. So literally, as we were talking, um, one of the candidates that we mentioned here, someone who got 22,000 votes in Michigan last night, unsuspended her campaign, and that would be Marianne Williamson. Again, this happened as we were discussing this on air and taping this very segment. Let's take a listen to what Marianne had to say. Hey, I have an important announcement to make. As of today, I am unsuspending my campaign for the presidency of the United States. I had suspended it because I was losing the horse race. But something so much more important than the horse race is at stake here, and we must respond. Ryan, Marianne Williamson unsuspending her campaign, the uncommitted movement now with a little bit of momentum going to, like you said, Minnesota. California's got a primary coming up. We're reeling right into, we're rolling right into Super Tuesday. Uh, it looks like Biden might be facing a seriously mobilized protest vote movement uh, in this primary now. Yes, the, I mean, across the Democratic Party, the opposition to his unconditional support for Israel's war effort is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was a, a poll recently that showed that uh, there's double-digit opposition from Jewish Democrats, like, and significant double-digit, not like 10 or 12. I don't remember the exact number, but it's significant opposition. And, and that stretches across the board. There's basically no demographic in the Democratic coalition that supports what Biden is doing. And so they're, they're going to be look, looking for any channel to express that opposition. And just before we leave this block, I know we didn't cover much Trump-Haley ground because basically the results are really similar to what people expected. Right. So 68 to 27. Again, that's the, the breakdown. There was a 538 polling average. So 5% uncommitted, right? Uh, I'm doing my math right. Somewhere around there. But there's a, and, and Nikki Haley, to your point, is kind of a protest vote to Donald yes. Trump. There's not a lot of people who are like, I just love Nikki Haley. There's some people. There's Democrats that love her. There's some, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, exactly. But again, there was a 538 average that I saw getting a little bit of uh, traction on the internet last night. And I went and looked at it. It was like, a few polls over the course of the last couple of months. And so Trump did underperform that by about 10 points. Uh, it had him in the mid to high 70s. And again, he ended That's up at 68. That's been a pattern, right? He keeps underperforming his polls. He keeps underperforming, although I don't necessarily know that that's a huge, again, when the polls are in state levels, I mean, polls just aren't always, uh, if you have a polling average of a couple polls in Michigan, I don't know what that means, but it's still, obviously, the quote that I wanted to read from this Axios report was, 
uh, about Nikki Haley, they said, but a sizable chunk, Nikki Haley's performance. So again, 27%. And Nikki Haley, when she was in South Carolina, her home state, that she poured way more money into than Donald Trump poured into South Carolina. She actually outspent Ron DeSantis and Trump in Iowa. She wildly outspent Donald Trump in New Hampshire. So she's pouring a lot of money into these states, getting 30, 40% of the vote. Again, we saw that happen last night, significant in a place where Donald Trump has always felt at home. It's done a lot of uh, stuff in Michigan. Uh, Axios says that the vote for Nikki Haley shows that, quote, but a sizable chunk of Republican voters may never be on board with Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's 2024. We've known that since 2015. We've seen it again since 2016. We saw it in 2018. We saw it in 2020. We saw it in 2022. Uh, we did not need Nikki Haley coming at 27% in Michigan to show that a sizable chunk of Republican voters may never be on board with Donald Trump. But thank you, Mike Allen, for pointing that out. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. But meanwhile, an interesting new YouGov economist poll uh, finds that he's you know, picked up sizable ground uh, basically since Biden was sworn in. Now, we can, we can put this, uh, this tweet from Adam Carlson up here. Mm -hmm. But, you, you, well, you have to remember that th this represents uh, sort of a nadir of Trump support. Mm -hmm. Like this is the moment. This is, we're talking like just a little bit after January 6th where the guy's mob ransacked the Capitol. Right. Uh, and and he's like <clears throat> facing impeachment. Uh, so from this bottoming out, uh, he's seen uh, a 45 point gain am among black voters, a 40 point gain among people 18 to 29. We'll, we'll go, let's go back to that in a second. Interestingly, a 
27% gain among people who make more than $100,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then he's picked up about a fifth of the electorate with basically everybody else, you know, moderates, uh, people living less than 50%, even liberals and Democrats. That comes, I think, from how, you know, he, he was down in probably single digits among some, among some of those liberals and Democrats. Polling finding the shifts in black voters, young voters, and Hispanic voters should terrify Joe Biden. And another thing I just want to point out, uh, because you won't hear it in the corporate press, is that this is just about Donald Trump. And I'm not particularly a fan of Donald Trump, uh, nor are most people that work in journalism professionally. But this is only happening with Donald Trump. This would you would not see these numbers with Nikki Haley. You would not see these Mm. numbers with other Republican candidates. For some reason, Donald Trump is making inroads with black voters, young voters, and Hispanic voters that Republicans who put out in 2012 their RNC autopsy saying the only way that we're going to win Hispanic voters is by moderating on immigration. The only way we're going to win young voters is by moderating on culture war issues. For some reason, Donald Trump is making inroads with those voting blocks that other Republicans are not, and other Republicans have never figured out how to do it. And again, so much of this is just like unique to Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you can't really replicate Donald Trump and Doug Mastriano, uh, or even in Ron DeSantis, as we've seen many different times play out with many different candidates. So it's not like this is some boon to the Republican Party. I think you know it would be easy to read these numbers and say, "Wow, um, you know Donald Trump, he's the he's the future of the Republican Party. Republican Party is now the party of the young and Hispanics and the." working class, it doesn't translate to other Republicans. Uh, But it is something that Donald Trump is doing. And these are huge gains in ways that should definitely terrify Joe Biden. We can put B2 up on the screen here. This is another one of the the polls. This is from uh, an Axios poll. Uh, They found... Again, Gen Z and millennial voters key to Biden's 2020 victory. They turned out in huge numbers, favored him by 20 points back in 2020. Uh, His support for Israel, Biden's support for Israel, is hurting him with young voters. Biden got 52% to Trump's 48% in a new Axios Gen Lab survey of voters between the ages of 18 and 34. 49% of 18 to 29-year-olds supported Trump compared with 43% for Biden in a New York Times-Siena college poll. So that's Axios and New York Times finding Donald Trump making huge huge inroads um, on Joe Biden with young voters uh, in the midst of the October 7th fallout. And Ryan, another part of this that's interesting uh, is that's not just people saying neither. That's people actually gravitating towards right. Donald Trump. Yeah, and there there was a, a vision in 2022 of a, a Democratic coalition uh, that would consist of uh, young people, uh, then people with college degrees, mm-hmm. people of color, that could get that could that was broadly behind a progressive agenda, that if if with enough adept kind of work inside the coalition could be weaponized toward a kind of working class agenda, child tax credits, uh, other support for uh, the working class, pro-union stuff, uh, that turns the Democratic coalition back into uh, a a genuinely progressive force. Like Mm -hmm. you, they they only won, say, Georgia, for instance, uh, because of the you know, overwhelming support from voters of color and, and young pe- and young people, and uh, there's a huge overlap between those two because the younger generation is the most most diverse that we we've had. They, that that was a kind of hopeful vision of a democratic party that could actually do something good for 
everyday people around the country. Uh, they threw that all away mm. with over support, unconditional support of uh, this genocide in Gaza and for a prime minister in Benjamin Netanyahu, whose mission is to see Biden lose. It just, absolutely just in, in, incredible lack of concern for their own electoral kind of success. Absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, and so now you with Trump, even with young people, um, that blows up that, that potential coalition that they had. Like, it, unless you can get that back, which is possible because like you said, without Trump, uh, yes. uh, those young people are like, yeah. <laughs> these guys are, <laughs> these guys are no. creeps and freaks. And, and we're actually going to talk about that um, pretty soon. Yes. Uh, so it, it could come back. But if, but if you don't have that, if you, if you don't, because in order to win young people, um, and also in order to win a lot of black voters, uh, you need you need policies that are going to benefit the kind of working class and, and progressive people kind of generally. Uh, if you're not going for young people, then you're just you know uh, playing Clintonian triangulation games uh, and and just trying to w you know win 50.1 percent by picking off you know center right voters, and that that's not a coalition that. It certainly gets me excited. So we saw Trump make huge inroads with in the Rio Grande Valley, and Sagar has talked about this. He's a Texas guy, so he understands Texas politics. But uh, Donald Trump's margins with Hispanic voters in the Rio Grande Valley and uh, Texas were very, very important to how close he came to defeating Joe Biden back in 2020. I mean, these margins in certain states are just absolutely critical, especially the battleground states in a place exactly like Michigan. Um, but these that's why this 45% jump, again, that is a very important point. It's from February of 2021 until now. So absolute low point for Donald Trump, but it's a 45-point jump. You know, not a five-point jump, 10-point jump, 45-point jump. So it's significant no matter what. Uh, 40 with... Uh, people aged 18 to 29, 27 with Hispanic voters. That's a huge deal. That's a five alarm fire type deal. That's like the media uh, is even covering this and they, they don't like Donald Trump, but like it should be an even bigger story given how huge these uh, advantages are. Again, for Republicans though, the Rio Grande Valley is a great example. Myra Flores uh, was, and she she was redistricted, but was one of those uh, Hispanic candidates. She was elected to Congress. I think she was elected in 2020 and then lost again in 2022. But either way, uh, with the redistricting, she ended up losing her seat. And some of the candidates down in the Rio Grande Valley that Kevin McCarthy kind of handpicked to win did not win. Um, there's something when Donald Trump is not on the ballot that doesn't translate for Republican voters uh, necessarily with those uh, same groups that have come to really like Donald Trump. And the Republican Party keeps trying to push Donald Trump away. Uh, that was one of his issues with Ronna McDaniel is that she just didn't kind of get Trumpism. She didn't want to necessarily have the RNC being uh, used in ways that were helpful in the legal battle sphere. Mm -hmm. I mean, money is fungible and I think they're not uh, technically allowed to use, he can't use campaign funds um, for paying off the legal battles. So what the RNC can do for the campaign then becomes a big question. Right. Uh, but the point is establishment Republicans in Washington are still very uncomfortable with Donald Trump. Um, but Donald Trump has uh, political instincts that resonate with people. And you know, eight years later, Republicans still can't quite grapple with that in a way that translates to other candidates. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Ryan, Trump right away came out and said, we're protecting IVF. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a a second point of this block that we want to get to, because when you're looking at Donald Trump specifically making gains with young voters, uh, with people who consider themselves liberal, he's up 20, he has a 20 point bump from February of 2021. uh, That can go out the door with other Republican candidates. Donald Trump though, uh, came out right away saying, yeah, Mm-mm. This is, and this, I think, is the key problem for the Republican coalition, because the one thing that kind of Trump and the anti-Trump Republican establishment agree on is that a lot of the kind of Republican cultural positions are terrible for them in general elections. Yes. And probably, I, probably nothing more so than, than, the, than the IVF issue. Abortion like in even, general. Right. I mean, which, which is, it's, it's within the sphere of, of abortion rights, but it's probably even even worse for them. I, yes, I, I don't, significantly. I, but so let, let's, so, so today the, the Senate is going, two Democrats in the Senate, Tammy Duckworth um, somebody else, and uh, Patty Murray are going to uh, try to force a vote on the Senate floor that tries to put Republicans on record that will say, uh, you could put this element up here, uh, that, that will say IVF is protected on a, on a federal level. Right. This flows out of the kind of shocking to the public Alabama Supreme Court decision that declared that embryos uh, that have been produced through the IVF process are children uh, and through through the entire kind of Alabama IVF system into into complete chaos. All all of the people who've been, uh, you know, hoping and praying uh, that they're finally going to have a chance to uh, to to raise children. Uh, and spending like enormous amounts of money, like you know, t- Tons of money, taking yeah. this, taking you know, a lot of people do this on credit, uh, and and otherwise you know, making extraordinary sacrifices because they want to they want to build a nuclear family, are, are now all of a sudden told that th- it's not happening. Uh, now Alabama is, is trying to give some type of immunity sh- legal shield yeah. to, to doctors, but you know, other walk, walk us through and, and and actually tell us a little bit about how. How big a part of the kind of pro-life movement is this IVF faction that that wants to go all the way to the wall for this? So in pro-life circles, you basically never hear this talked about. Um, it's it's not in 
a top of mind issue, especially after Dobbs. It's a lot of conversations just about states and abortion in particular. Uh, although if you believe, and Crystal and I talked about this and actually like kind of debated it a little bit last week, if you believe that um, you know, conception is the moment of that, that life begins, obviously most people in pro-life circles, push comes to shove, end up on that side of the, uh, myself included, end up on side of that. But there are other states, I think Louisiana is one of the examples, that have protections for embryos that have not upended the entire IVF system in this way that, I mean, the politics of it are bad, and we'll get to this in a bit, but the, the morality of it is awful. I mean, NPR profiled a woman uh, who is now like my embryos are at this clinic, but the clinic will not give me my mm -hmm. embryos and the clinic can't do anything with my fertilized embryos. Uh, it's just heart-wrenching. People's hopes and dreams and, and livelihoods are on the line uh, because of a ping-ponging sort of legal question. It's awful. Because um, you, you end up losing the moral thread there, it feels like, if, if the purpose is life. And family. Just yeah. leaving an embryo in a freezer indefinitely yeah. doesn't seem to even be kind of in service of their own no, agenda. No, not at all. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And so Tammy Duckworth picked up on the, the politics of this. Donald Trump right away said protecting it. Um, but Tammy Duckworth and Democrats immediately, there's a lot of headlines that always say Republicans pounce whenever there's a politically mm -hmm. uh, convenient issue for them. Well, Democrats definitely pounce this time. Let's listen to Senator Duckworth, whose children, by the way, were uh, born via IVF. One in four married women have difficulty getting pregnant or carrying a pregnancy to term. One in four. That doesn't even include single individuals and other families also trying to conceive. So to my Republican colleagues, please think about how many that one in four represents in your state. Women willing to go through expensive, painful treatments just for a chance to experience the most banal moments of parenthood. Just to have a newborn to swaddle, a toddler whose shoes need to be tied. And if you believe that they should have the right to be called mom without also being called a criminal, then all you have to do to prove it is help us pass this should be obvious legislation. Because in this nightmarish moment, it's nowhere near enough to send out a vaguely worded tweet suggesting that you care about women's rights, despite a voting record to the absolute contrary. Instead, if you truly care about the sanctity of families, if you're genuinely, actually, honestly interested in protecting IVF, then you need to show it by not blocking this bill on the floor tomorrow. It's that simple. And she said that because we can put this next element up on the screen. This is from Newsweek. Uh, it's a headline that says, Republicans call Alabama IVF ruling scary. And if you're watching this, you see the picture of uh, Matt Gates up on the screen uh, because Matt Gates is one of the Republicans who came out right away uh, and said, nope, uh, Republicans should be protecting IVF. He said there was something, quote, totally wrong about the situation. Uh, you also had Byron Donalds, another Freedom Caucus guy, come out in that direction. And then some establishment uh, people like Chris Sununu even Tommy Tuberville, uh, again, who was seen as like now a pro-life champion based on uh, his stand that we covered a lot here last year um, on Pentagon and abortion sort of. So even Tuberville you know, is? Even Tuberville. And so is well, if this gets to the floor, will, will this be a thing where Republicans just kind of cave and like it gets unanimous support? I don't know, because Duckworth did something really clever. 
Uh, it's basically it, it, like she's basically saying it would establish a federal right to IVF and other fertility treatments that are at risk in the post row era. That's what, according to the Hill, is on the line in the bill that she and Patty Murray puts the floor. So if it's a bill with really sweeping implications that Republicans don't necessarily want to sign on to at a federal level, then she might have a bunch of Republicans. And you heard that in her quote at the end of the statement there. She might have a bunch of Republicans uh, in a real pickle, uh, voting against a bill that they feel because is... Because what are the sweeping kind of protections? Like it would undermine Louisiana's, maybe, whatever they're yeah, doing? Yeah, right. So like maybe if, it, and I'm not saying that that's the right interpretation of it, but you could see how like legally Republican interpretations of a federal uh, right to IVF might, yeah, exactly, like uh, go after certain state protections or whatever, or uh, it might just be something that has implications for other abortion legislation, because if you're, or like birth control legislation, some really, like, I don't know. Where they get even more tangled up. Yeah. Because then they're like, well, I would love to support this protection of IVF, but I'm worried it might protect birth control. And exactly. then and then voters like, well, wait a minute, you're, 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 you're seriously exactly. against birth control too? Exactly. And I, Speaker Mike Johnson's response to this, I think, was indicative of the problems that Republicans have, where he immediately came out and was like, this, this, is, this is bad what the Alabama Supreme Court did. And then people were immediately like, uh, you sponsored a bill that would basically do this. <laughs> yes. And it, fe it feels like the yes. Republican implicit response is, yeah, but I just did that for political purposes. Like, I don't actually intend that to become law. And then the public is like, well, we kind of heard you say that for like 50 years with Roe v. Wade. And we right. sort of were lulled into complacency. Right. And then all of a sudden you overturn Roe v. Wade. So this like, well, this is just cynicism that we're doing here. We wouldn't actually do this. Uh, it doesn't work after they overturned Roe. Well, yeah, and again, you have uh, Tammy Duckworth saying, if you're serious, you need to vote in favor of this bill. And so I think, again, yeah, that's what Democrats have learned is like the big political mm -hmm. lesson post-Roe is to <clears throat> tell Republicans to put their money where their mouth is uh, if they're going to come out and all of these things. So I was on Megyn Kelly's show this week, and uh, among the sort of Republican politicians that we just discussed, uh, Megyn's a huge supporter of IVF. And again, you know, I've talked to, debated with Crystal about this and, and others. Uh, I have a wildly unpopular position <laughs> on this, but it's just sort of the logical consistency of if you believe that life begins at conception, this is where the problem for Republicans across the board against, the picture. or no, not at all. And that's the, that's what the okay. clip actually gets that's, to. So let's roll uh, the conversation. Megan gets into how unpopular th she thinks this is going to be for Republicans, dangerous it is for Republicans, and then pushes me on one thing as well. There is a huge difference between looking at a woman and saying, "You do not have the right to kill your own child," and saying to her, "You do not have the right to have." your own child. That is just a complete, completely different message politically, morally, religiously. Take your pick. And the latter's not going to fly. It's not going to fly with Republicans. It's not going to fly with the very group that Trump is trying to win over, as we discussed earlier, in particular, young, moderate women, right? That's who he needs to win. So he took the right position on this. Can, before we go, can you just, can you expand on what you're saying, Emily? Because it's been a long while. You know, my youngest child is now 10. So I haven't really been following the latest IVF developments, but what is the more, you know, moral, humane way of doing it that you're referring to? So targeted, yeah, like, like what you were saying about to minimize situations where people have 10 extra embryos that they have to make decisions on. Um, so and, like, just, and, just put the number of eggs in the Petri dish that you're willing to have. Like, it's really the eggs that will control the number of children. 
Right, 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 right. And then figuring out what these clinics do with extra eggs too. Um, I, I think that's a big, 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 big legal question as well, because now we have people like the woman on the daily caught in the lurch when a court decision comes down. So as this stuff sort of uh, flip-flops or, or ping-pongs through the legal system, you're going to have people's lives sort of caught in the balance. And uh, th- there should be some way that there's there's clarity so people aren't in those situations. So Ryan, Megan is picking up on an important point, which is similar to what Tammy Duckworth said, that you should have the right to have your own child. Um, the problem with the way that I believe IVF should be done is that it's extremely expensive to do that. Uh, it, it is basically unfeasible for a lot of people. So I, I don't pretend that that's like an easy answer to the question. But uh, I think, you know, Republicans are starting to realize post-Roe how bad the environment is for them, especially, Megan pointed out, young women. Um, probably another reason Tammy Duckworth and Patty Murray jumped on this right away because, you know, Donald Trump is saying one thing about IVF, but down ballot candidates, that can get really tough for them. Right. And because the the problems are many, it's, you know, it's not just money. It's also time. You know, you're, you're getting older every single month. Yes. And one reason that they do, you know, more than the, more than one is so that one takes. Yes. Sometimes six take. Yeah. And. You know, that, that could be fatal for, for a woman trying to carry that. The other problem comes with the, uh, some of it is around genetics. Like there, there might be some uh, genetic problems in the family mm-hmm. that, would, that would create practically an, un, an unviable pregnancy. And so they can th- then create an embryo and genetically test and make sure, okay, it, it did not get that gene. Uh, and so uh, therefore, you know, we're not going to use this one yeah. because that could you know, that, that just simply won't work. Uh, now, you can imagine where you can get into some ethical yeah, complications say, where yeah. then you start to do genetic engineering, but that's not, that's not what's going on. Um, or or, or un- unless the government wants to come in and say, like, no, right. this is like, we're, we're going we're gonna to dictate exactly how this, how this goes down. Uh, and the, the point that she made about the painful nature of it, I think, is also mm-hmm. in, important to underscore. For some reason, the medical community... Uh, when it comes to women, just can't figure out ways to to do these procedures, you know, without them being extraordinarily painful. Yeah. And so, uh, every time that a woman tries this and fails, uh, they went through all of that pain, coupled with then this hope, um, coupled with then the heartbreak of it not working, mm-hmm. th- followed up by oh, you're back in for this like excruciatingly painful. Uh, process something that I imagine like most men like would never be able to even like remotely handle, um, and and then still told oh you can only do one, again because mm-hmm. the Republicans um, don't want you to do more than one. It, you get your hopes up again, your heart breaks again, you're back in the painful situation. And so time, you, like you said, it's, right? You, you're you're back at square one, but you're a year right. further ahead. And yeah. you know, lost a hundred thousand dollars to this. And yeah. now, you, now you, you and you finance that. Now what? And the the physical toll on your body. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, and just it, it's what's happening to people. The uncertainty that people in Alabama are dealing with right now. Like again, NPR profiled this woman whose fertilized embryos are in a clinic. And you know, if you believe that that's life, that's human life. Right. It feels and like kidnapping. Christopher Hitchens. I'm sure. Was actually, I'm sure it feels a woman like that. Her like her future children have been kidnapped. Yeah. I would commend to everybody, uh, there was a, a great Christopher Hitchens essay uh, that he wrote in 2003 uh, for Vanity Fair, uh, just sort of 
talking about the implications of, of technology and the, the left sort of idea about when life does begin and, and the kind of difficult places that I can take us, that that can take us to. Uh, these are questions that are uh, worth thinking about, but it's in, in Alabama right now, there are a lot of people who are in uh, dire straits and just desperately worried about uh, the, these, you know, the, the, these, lives, from my perspective at least, that, and from their perspective, again, the woman from NPR uh, said those are, like, it feels like a death in the family. Uh, so yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's awful and there needs to be solutions to it. And uh, the politics of this are absolutely brutal for Republicans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Let's talk about the ongoing uh, ceasefire negotiations over in the Middle East. Uh, president Biden kind of supplanted himself as one of the most, if not the most, hated presidents in the Middle East by announcing that there was going to be a ceasefire while licking an ice cream cone, an uh, in, in image that will, I think, live, live in infamy uh, for, for decades to come. Worse still, it seems like it wasn't even true. Mm -hmm. that, that, that he may have been doing this on Monday, right before Michigan was supposed to vote to try to depress the uncommitted vote, uh, is, is a thought almost kind of too cynical to even contemplate. I'm, I'm going to tell myself that it was just his addled mind uh, that, that allowed him to kind of lie, lie about this. Or his spokesperson, John Kirby, uh, was lying, one or the other. Let, let's play uh, John Kirby's response uh, to Biden's claim that, there, that we, he expected a ceasefire by this coming Monday. Just to follow on Weijia's previous question, though, we've learned, according to an Israeli source, that Netanyahu was quite surprised by the president's comments about his expectations that there would be a ceasefire by Monday. So that doesn't bode a lot of optimism that one of the key parties was surprised by that timeline the president had set. So why did he say Monday? I can't speak for uh, the surprise that foreign leaders have or don't have with regard to uh, uh, things that we're saying. The president uh, talked to y'all uh, after... Uh, staying completely up, up to speed, and he has been kept up to speed on how these negotiations are going. And he shared with you some context, and he certainly shared with you his optimism that we can get there in, uh, in hopefully short order. Ryan, can I just say how weird it is that he felt the need 
to confirm that the president has stayed, quote, completely up to speed on the negotiations. That's a strange thing to say. And then lied, if that's what Kirby is saying. Right. So, so, yeah, he was up to speed on the negotiations. uh, But then he said something that shocked the people who were actually engaged in the negotiations. Uh, But it almost felt like a tell. That, like, oh, like, they're... Keeping, Don't worry, we're, we're keeping them in the loop. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, so Matt Miller over the State Department was also uh, asked about this. Let's roll his response. Back up the assertion that you just made in response to one of Saeed's questions that we're closer today than we were yesterday. Uh, just that we continue negotiations, and I can't, unfortunately... Well, why? I can, well, okay, I, fine, but, but continuing I, I, well, negotiations... I, so they haven't broken down. Is that why we? I am. So I can't really answer that without point. getting into the underlying substance of the negotiations. But the talks continue, and we think we continue to make progress okay, on them. But I'm not. Well, yeah. Exactly. You said I said we think we continue to make progress. Well, that's no, the basis no. Of, I, that is the basis of my statement. You said we are closer today than and we continuing, were yesterday. Continuing and so to make progress. Just, we, there isn't anything you, you can, can give to us now, or present to us, or tell us. <laughs> That would actually back up the idea that I that a ceasefire slash hostage deal is closer today than it was yesterday. I can never show you definitive progress in talks that, by their very nature, are secret. I mean, I okay, I get the logical point he's making. Yeah, um, that there's secret talks. He's not going to say anything about them, and so therefore he can't back up what he's saying there. Yeah, uh, but the context is that the president of the United States uh, just said that he expects a ceasefire on a very specific time frame, one week from the day that he said it. And then he had specifically said, we're closer today than we were yesterday. So those are very reasonable questions. Okay, great, why? Like, he tells anything. Right. Uh, Because we're hearing uh, from uh, sources in Hamas and from sources in the Israeli government that they're not very close at all. Qataris, too, yeah. And they're saying they're not not remotely close. Yep. Uh, So... Anyway, there there you go. That's what the American government's going to share with us. And again, that's why I think it's really noteworthy that Kirby said the the president has been, quote, up to speed, kept up to speed in the negotiations, because it actually seems like Biden, and I know this is fraught, but it, it seems like Biden might not have been up to speed. And so when they say that he's been kept up to speed, that's sort of the tell. They're like projecting what they want to, the, the opposite of what the truth is, to say he's he's totally up to speed. Um, maybe he's not up to speed because he's not lucid enough to be a significant part of these negotiations. Yeah, unfortunately, everything we keep hearing is that, uh, he is, is that Biden is driving this policy. Or Biden's lieutenants understand the Biden policy well enough to drive it for him. I, I would, I don't know. You, you would, you would hope that, um, I mean, and maybe that represents a lack of uh, lucidity, that, that Biden is just so kind of locked into his ideological, unconditional Agree support of that. Israel that he's yes. unable to absorb new inputs. Even when people are saying like this five alarm fire in Michigan, like you have to, you, you have to start reconciling your Mr. Two-State Solution, decades of two-state solution uh, with what Netanyahu is doing right. as Mr. One-State Solution. It's wrecking you. And he's not, he's, he's changing nothing. Like he went on Seth Meyers the other day, right? right? And Meyers, you know, presses him on this. Meyers, who's Jewish American, by the way, uh, Biden responds by saying, I, I'm, a, I'm a Zionist. You don't have to be Jewish to be a yep. Zionist. And I believe that uh, no Jew in the world is safe uh, without Israel. Talking to an, a Jewish American, like telling him 
that he's incapable of keeping Seth Meyers safe in his own country? Yeah. What, what a failure on his part. If, if, if that's true, if there are so many Nazis running rampant in this country, then go do your job and make this country safe for everyone. The idea that you can outsource your job as American president to keep all Americans safe by saying, well, we've got some other country. Can you imagine if he said, no, no Nigerian is safe here in the United States without Nigeria? They'd be like, uh, well, how about uh, you keep the Nigerians in the United States safe? Now, that's a nationality question rather than a religion question. Uh, but the, the entire premise of it is just so convoluted. But this is one of the other reasons that I read these leaks in a different way, coming from the right than people on the left, uh, because I do think it's a frustration. Uh, we know that like Biden's own staff uh, is kind of split on this, that there's some people that are hardcore with him on that question of, of Zionism and the two-state solution. We know there are other people in the administration that are less comfortable with that. Karine Jean-Pierre herself wrote an op-ed uh, about the, the problems with that. What was this, like three years ago? I think it was yeah. HuffPost. Uh, so, I, I mean, these these divides exist in the administration. Newsweek.com. Oh, it was yes, Newsweek. The, the new weird Newsweek. That's oh, like, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, I think and that's, it was Newsweek. Yeah. The, we have another clip of Matt Miller uh, getting oh. press, pressed on some of these problems for the administration. We can roll up. There have been now at least six documented instances depicting members of the IDF displaying or rifling through women's underwear. And of course, that's just on camera. Soldiers have, as we've seen, stripped and tortured Palestinians. There have been a reported history of, of um, soldiers abusing children that they've detained even before October 7th. And of course, you know, investigations need to be pursued. But still, given, you know, all that we've seen from Israeli forces just up to this point, What's the U.S. government doing in response now, given the U.N. experts' alarm at credible allegations of human rights violations and sexual violence committed against Palestinians? We make clear to the government of Israel that we expect them to, to behave consistent with the laws of war and consistent with their own rules of engagement. And we have seen the Israeli military come out and say it is conducting its own investigations into reports of soldiers who have failed to comply with either of those two uh, uh, sets of rules. And that's appropriate. And that's what you expect a professional military to do. And we expect those investigations to proceed and, if appropriate, hold the, uh, the responsible parties accountable. Yeah, and this is, this is in response to the new TikTok trend among IDF soldiers uh, to kind of steal lingerie and other, other garments. I saw canes. Palestinian women. Canes. Uh, one, one guy uh, curled up in a crib uh, and, and put that on, on TikTok. No, nobody knows, uh, you know, where that child is. Is that has that child been killed by the IDF? Uh, is that child starving? Is that obviously the child is um, has has been pushed out of uh, his or her home because the soldier is now like, you know, having a good time, like sleeping in, in the kids in the kids' crib. Uh, the the one though correction that I would make to Miller's point here, he says that you know we expect uh, the Israelis to abide by international law. The U.S. government actually has given Israel until uh, middle of March to sign a document uh, saying that they will abide by international law in order to continue to receive um, American weapons. The irony is that within the U.S. government, that represents a victory uh, for the people who have been pushing for some sort of accountability and some sort of reckoning uh, with the human rights abuses that Israel is committing with uh, American weapons. But it also puts on display uh, a, a rather glaring problem, which is that, wait a minute, you're giving them until the middle of March 
to follow the law. And in the meantime, that's insane. And in the meantime, saying, like, you know, we expect our partners in Israel. Right. To, you've you've, you've yeah. saying that you expect them to follow. Why, why do you expect them to follow it if it's going to take them until the middle of March even to decide whether or not they're going to put their signature on a meaningless document asserting that they're going to follow the law mm -hmm. when they haven't been following the law? Yeah. For months and years, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Let's put this next element up on the screen just to wrap up this block. A Reuters report inside the Democratic rebellion against Biden over the Gaza war. We covered earlier in the show today, Ryan, what happened in Michigan last night, uh, which, you know, I think really was was worse than what the Biden administration even expected. If you put the protest vote together, you're somewhere near 20 percent uh, of voters coming out against Biden. He, he lost or I'm sorry, he won Michigan in 2020 by 155,000 votes. Uh, he, the protest vote itself was around 122,000, no, 140 something thousand votes just last night in a low turnout primary uh, for Joe Biden. We played Debbie Dingell early in the show saying this was even Ypsilanti. It wasn't just Dearborn. This is uh, kind of across the board in places uh, where, you know, there are concentrations of young voters, American voters, uh, and people across the board are concerned about this issue for Joe Biden. Uh, and that may translate into how people vote. Uh, it does seem, and according to this Reuters report, people were caught off guard in the White House. That might be the most shocking part. Like, what do you mean you were caught off guard? Right. The, the Reuters report uh, tells us uh, that the Biden campaign really did believe that this was isolated to Arab and or Muslim voters. Mm -hmm. And that once the campaign really heated up and the contest was between Biden and Trump, that it would fade as a concern. Like that was the, that, that was, according to this article, the, the actual belief of grown people who looked at this situation, analyzed it, and came to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. That is rather shocking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it seems like at the very least, they would be aware, uh, you know, you can, you can prosecute your policy, but to have the blind spot about what this is doing um, is somewhat shocking. Yeah, yeah if, if you want to say, look, we're, we're, ha we're happy to lose over this. If, if they want to say that, okay, that's right. an immorally principled position. Right. Uh, but to say, we're going to engage in this and people are going to forget about it because Trump is, is so out of touch. Right. Uh, that it is genuinely shocking. But this is where actually, and, and that's an interesting point, this is where Democrats uh, and especially establishment Democrats laser focus on Donald Trump since 2016, a guy who is super polarizing and absolutely will get them votes in battleground states that are critical to winning re-election. There's no question about it. But if you just bank on that without also advancing an agenda uh, that people, a lot of other people feel, because on the margins, if you lose other people, the marginal math against yeah. Donald Trump doesn't work. So you, you can't do one and not the other. You can't just say Donald Trump is so toxic that as much as we talk about him, so long as it's a binary choice between a Democrat, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, a binary choice between Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg and Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, as long as we have that binary choice, we can do what we want policy-wise. That's just stupid. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? Biden might still win, which is the craziest thing on the planet. <laughs> he might. 
Well, again, I mean, like the binary choice is not good for Republicans. Right. They're Trump not might wrong Trump, about Trump that. Trump might lose like, is the more accurate way to put it. Yeah, it. They're not wrong about that. Again, it yeah. is not helpful to Republicans to have the, the binary choice on the national level. Uh, even though we talked earlier in the show about Trump making gains with certain demo uh, blocks that are helpful to Republicans, it's still, you know, it's, the binary choice isn't great. Uh, for, Imagine if Biden wins and he's still president in 2028. I like he would leave in 2029, like January 2029. I can genuinely not imagine Joe Biden in 2020. It's going to be something to see. Actually, Ryan, something the White House might want to take a look at is this video of Students for Justice in Palestine at the University of Texas in Dallas doing some work here, uh, trolling a top executive of Lockheed Martin. Let's watch it right now. That you have a very impressive resume during the 18 years that you spent working on the F-22 jets. In the years since that you worked on the F-35, if you were to give an estimate, how many children do you think you've killed? Uh, I don't even know how to answer that question. No, we're lucky for the shot. Thank you. Hey, Ross. As a business major, company culture is a big factor when looking for internships, especially at a project manager position where you can spend most of your time working with others. What can you share about company culture and working with a team of genocide supporters and murderers? Uh, that's another one I'm not going to answer because that's not who I work with. And I'm just wondering, as, oh, let's say, an intern working on, like, as a systems engineer or a software engineer, um, I don't know if you'd be able to speak on this, but would you be working on a small part of those systems? Or are you working on projects with business impact? Like, would I be kind of doing, like, a small little side project, or would I be able to directly contribute to the murder of Palestinian children? That was a really well done protest. Having dealt yeah. with these types of protests uh, significantly, that's one of the most well done that I've seen. Subtle but stinging, it, it, and unstoppable. It, it forces you to think about the implications of the work that you're doing. You know, it, you know, and I, you know what? I, there are a lot of good people working for uh, companies that are doing horrible things. Uh, there. The United States of America has has wrought, you know, so much, you know, the the number of people the U.S. has killed in since the global war on terror was launched is is well into the millions, and you don't do that without the backing of basically the entire kind of industrial base, and so it's very hard not to be complicit in it. Some people are more complicit than others. If you're a software engineer on an F-22, now you may you may have gone to work. Uh, for the working, hoping that you're working on uh, a 747, mm. you know, just trying, just trying to get people from one place to to another, and then you wind up working for an F-22, uh, and and you hope that uh, that F-22 is going to do uh, some type of Tom Cruise I was just gonna thing say, yeah. that's just uh, taking out the, an unnamed country's evil system, un, unnamed evil system, and just making the world a better place. You find out that in in real life. Uh, you're just you're just splaying children against the walls, the crumbling walls of uh, of, of Gaza. Top Gun, like many many movies made with significant Pentagon. Oh uh, yes, subsidization. Unable to be make, unable to be made without you know the Pentagon's you know, cooperation and support. And to Debbie Dingle's point, and to your point, that was at the University of Texas in Dallas. Uh, so this is not just Dearborn, as people mm-hmm. in the White House might want to think it right. is. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, let's move on to John Stewart, who, Ryan, hosted a debate with your colleague, uh, Murtaza Hussein, um, and who was it? Yair Rosenberg. Yair Rosenberg was on it. And, but John Stewart basically covered this issue more broadly on his show. Kind of zeroed and, in on that, yeah. Yeah, in a way that really seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Let's roll one clip of that here. Dear God. <laughs> if you insist on this plan, if you think that ends Hamas... I believe we in the United States have a banner you can use. Um, it's a little wind damaged, but equally delusional. Look, the United States is Israel's closest ally, Israel's big brother in the fraternity of nations, Israel's work emergency contact. <laughs> Maybe it's time for the U.S. to give Israel some tough moral love. This is shameful. There has to be accountability for these war crimes. No targeting civilians in war. Stop the war crimes and the atrocities and end the war today. It could happen right now. Right now! Thank you! These atrocities must be... Sorry, I'm being told the administration was talking about Russia bombing Ukraine. I apologize. Also a war crime. Uh, but I'm sure they're giving equally stern advice to Israel. The Biden administration is urging Israel to be much more careful, to be more cautious. How Israel does this matters. Israel must do more to protect innocent civilians. We want to see the government of Israel take steps to minimize civilian harm. Be more surgical and more precise. Be more careful. Hey, Israel! Take it down the nuts. <laughs> Could you please be more careful with your bombing? It's good advice. But really, couldn't the United States have told Israel that when we gave them all the bombs? We're, there are bombs. There's, this is like your Coke dealer coming in with an eight ball and going, don't stay up all night. Don't. Sleep is very important. You got to sleep. You know? So the, the, the problem, like, funny, good stuff. Biting, like this is this is the John Stewart that we love. The the problem I had with this is that when he 
came out later and uh, hosts this debate between Yair Rosenberg and, and Maz Hussein. Maz, and people should go watch the whole thing, uh, it was um, among the most kind of obtuse and dense I've seen Jon Stewart really? be in an, in an interview. Uh, Maz was making the point that the U.S. should either be a fair broker between the Palestinians and, and the Israelis and actually get you know, towards peace rather than what they're doing now, which is basically unconditional support for one side and not even talking uh, to the other side, except uh, some Abbas figures who are, who are not remotely, you know, credible among Palestinians. So we're, we're just, we're not engaged in any kind of fair, serious way leading to it. He said, so either do it fairly, which we're not going to do, uh, or step aside, get, get out. And Maz's argument is that if the United States kind of withdraws its blank check, withdraws its unconditional support for Israel, that could actually help Israel. That, that would enable Israel's need to compromise with its neighbors rather than enabling its worst impulses, which are never to compromise and continuing to uh, annex, create more settlements, more conflict, manage the conflict so that you can appease the kind of far right, which wants complete control of the West Bank, the, the far, far right that wants complete control of the, the Gaza Strip, although the, you know, that, that element is now creeping well across the entire Israeli spectrum among this, the heat of this, of this moment. With the U.S. offering unconditional support, that political element within Israel is, is kind of buttressed and, mm -hmm. and is able to then push aside um, any elements that say, well, no, why don't, we, why don't we compromise? Because you know, we, we, we live here. Like we're going to have to live with these with with these neighbors for hundreds and thousands of years. So let's let's find a solution here. You don't need a solution if the U.S. is going to support you. So Maz's argument was, U.S. backs away, then they're forced into actually doing some sort of compromise here. Uh, John Stewart and Yair's response to that was to kind of make these dumb, you know, stale twenty-year-old jokes about how uh, the United States can't wave a magic wand and influence. Uh, world affairs everywhere in the world. They never address his very specific point, point about why, in fact, they could, which is beside the point that all of the kind of uh, money and weapons that we're giving are making the entire thing possible. Like we talk about a, a magic wand. We're not giving them magic wands. We're giving them exploding wands all the time, and they keep dropping them on people. And that is the thing that is driving them forward. At the same day that this was happening, uh, Bibi Netanyahu posted uh, a statement bragging about a, a, a completely absurd Mark Penn Harris X. You know, that, like he's the last guy on earth who actually thinks Mark Penn is doing <laughs> like real credible polls. But so Mark Penn posted posted this poll. Clinton Acolyte. Yeah, yeah, just the worst person on the planet, <laughs> uh, objectively speaking. And so I want to see you rank uh, yes. your worst people. Actually, that would be a fun. There's good Mark Penn time. stuff in, in, I think, most of my books. Um, but anyway, so the poll that Mark Penn claimed to have uh, come up with said that the American people are actually more supportive of Israel than they are of, of the Palestinians. Uh, American public opinion is strongly against this war and strongly for a ceasefire. So, but set that aside. Pretend it's true. Netanyahu pointed at this poll and said, look, this is a result of my PR campaign that I've been doing in the United States. I have gotten the U.S. public support for this war effort. That U.S. public support will enable us to continue this war until complete victory. That's what he's telling the Israeli public. 
So if Netanyahu believes that American support is essential and American public opinion is essential to continuing the war, why do John Stewart and Yair Rosenberg think that he's wrong about that? Like, why does he think that the U.S. actually doesn't have that much influence? So that, that's what bothered me about um, the, the, the kind of contradiction between his good monologue uh, and, you know, effectively pointing out uh, the, the way that the U.S. is enabling uh, war crimes in one place and condemning them in another place. Uh, but then when it comes to having the actual conversation, uh, he, he, he just felt obtuse about the whole thing. I've always found John Stewart to be inflexible in debate. I think it's it's his weakness, whereas like when he can uh, write or work on a really clever scripted monologue, uh, he's he's more biting, and uh, I think his his arguments are more finely honed or finely tuned. But in debates, you know, actually speaking of which, Tucker Carlson just yesterday went on Lex Friedman's show, or the, the interview dropped yesterday, and Tucker Carlson said John Stewart was right in that infamous Crossfire interview. <laughs> uh, it was one of the there's a super interesting interview that Tucker did with Lex Friedman, but uh, it was one point that Tucker said, and I disagree with that actually, but it's one point Tucker said, you know, crossfire was fundamentally toxic because it was just about Democrats versus Republicans. It was this binary, partisan binary between Dems, Republicans, not so much even like left and right, independent. It was just Dems and Republicans. And that was like fundamentally harmful to the country. So John Stewart was right. So maybe, right, that's a moment where John Stewart thrived in debate. Uh, how did uh, Maz find the experience of going on the show? I think the he thought the, the questions were a little bit uh, not well pointed. I'd, I'd say, and if you and if you go, I think you should go watch the interview. You see him. You see that Stewart's questions. You're like, how do you even answer that? Like, what is what kind of question is this? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it wasn't. It, it almost it almost felt like John Stewart was pretty nervous and was kind of retreating to more comfortable tropes. It's a hard um, thing to do. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, you know when. I, when I go on, let's say, like CNN or something, uh, and I'm and I'm asked to talk about like the most sensitive stuff, I'm like I get a little nervous. I'm like, am I going to say the wrong thing here? Like, mm -hmm. it's, I I don't blame him for that. For some reason, I'm not nervous here, even though these clips also uh, go out to the world. Right, but, <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> uh, sometimes even Russian state about. media. <laughs> the other dirty secret, by the way, to back up what Tucker uh, said about um, uh, John Stewart being right, is that most People in media, and I bet you would. I bet you this is your experience too. Most people in media who participate in that circus uh, think that it's a sham, and yeah, it's and think that it's actually bad for the country. Yeah, and are frustrated. Like you know, I used to be an MSNBC contributor back in the mid 2010s, uh, and <laughs> it was it was frustrating. You'd get on and you'd have like 45 seconds. Yeah, it's to really do an answer, hard. and then you'd have another 45 seconds to do another answer, and then and then like that's it. Yeah, like this is so so much more. Now, 45 seconds is better than none, so that's why I'd do it. Um, right. But I prefer this format much, much better where we can just uh, go on and on and on, never shut up. Although sometimes we have, uh, you know, people, guests in studio like we have right now that we're going to get to. Uh, so we, we got to shut <laughs> up and bring them point. in. Yeah. But yes, uh, no, super interesting. And I look forward to watching the full debate because, I mean, even if Stewart's questions were lacking. Uh, hosting a debate in that format, this is why I disagree on Crossfire. I think that's uh, fundamentally a good thing, so I look forward to watching it. Let's talk government shutdown. All right, so we are just two days away from a Friday government shutdown of 20% of the government. If we don't reach a deal, and spoiler, it does not look like we're going to reach a deal, uh, that does not make Mitch McConnell happy. Let's roll this clip uh, from the 
Senate Republican leader. Good afternoon, everyone. As you know, we were uh, four of us were at the White House with President Biden earlier uh, in the day, and I think it's pretty safe to say we all agree we need to avoid a government shutdown. Uh, the speaker was optimistic that they'll be able to move forward first with the four bills, and um, under no circumstances does anybody want to shut the government down, so I think we can stop that drama right here before it uh, emerges. We're simply not going to do that. So um, we're going to come close, I hope, to having an orderly appropriation process, obviously not by the time we should have done it, but better than we've done some years uh, by getting this four through and then doing the balance of them as a mini bus a little bit later. All right, a little more than 10 years ago, Mitch McConnell uh, pushed kind of was part of a government shutdown uh, that went absolutely terribly uh, for Republicans. And, and when when Republic, when the kind of right flank of the Republicans came back shortly afterwards trying to shut the government down, he said, there's no education in the second kick of a mule. <laughs> Since then, he has been kicked by that mule <laughs> over and over <laughs> and over again. Uh, and there is no education in it. He's, he's still of the mind that a government shutdown is terrible for Republicans, and yet it still looks like he's going to get kicked. What's, what's your uh, read on, uh, on poor Mitch McConnell and that mule? First of all, speaking at a, you could say, tortoise-like pace, just glacially <laughs> Hope everybody sped that one up. Yeah, that was really something. Um, Mitch McConnell's word is not going to mean a whole lot on the House side anymore. And actually, even as became clear last month, on the Senate side, it's starting to hold increasingly less water because there's a mutiny brewing uh, that is being led by people like Mike Lee, uh, but also being joined by people like Ted Cruz, uh, others that have, you know, been sort of faithful McConnell deputies uh, to, you know. Oh, he led that shutdown I was talking about. He did. He did. Uh, but in like the well, last went very well five him. years. Yes, yeah. great. But that's what I was just going to say, actually, is, you know, if you're talking to Chip Roy, who is leading the mutiny among Freedom Caucus Republicans on the House side, they know that their constituents want them to shut down the government. Uh, they will not be punished in their districts for shutting down the government. Uh, but nationally, Republicans will certainly be punished for shutting down the government. Chuck Schumer was in a meeting uh, with Hakeem Jeffries, Mike Johnson, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden at the White House yesterday. And Mitch McConnell. Yeah, the whole. And, yeah, the whole gang was there. Uh, so let's take a little uh, listen to what Chuck Schumer said outside the White House after the meeting yesterday, and then we'll hear from Mike Johnson as well. Here's Schumer. What made this meeting one of the most intense you've ever had? The urgency life? of supporting Ukraine and the consequences to the people of America, to America's strength, if we don't do anything and don't do anything soon. I was so, so shaken by what I saw at the border. I was, I was strengthened by the, by the strength of Zelensky and the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian soldiers, but shaken that here they are fighting without arms against a brutal dictator who will just do anything to kill them. And the intensity in that room was surprising to me. But because of the passion of the president, the vice president, leader, leader uh, Jeffries, Speaker, Leader McConnell and myself. So he seemed to have a little Freudian slip there. And uh, Chip Roy. mentioned the speaker. Mitch Mc, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Chuck Schumer seemed to have a little oh. Freudian 
slip there when he said the urgency of supporting Ukraine. I was shaken by what I saw at the border. Chip Roy jumped on that and said, I think reasonably implied that Schumer was talking, the only border he could have been talking about in that context is the Ukrainian border. That is a very tone-deaf way to defend this government shutdown. There's a much better way for Democrats to, def to defend this government shutdown. Saying that you were shaken by what you saw at the Ukraine border is about as bad as it could get for Democrats' messaging on this. I mean, this is the, their big issue right now, and, and, and Mitch McConnell, too. Yep. McConnell said that, uh, you know, McConnell privately in that meeting, but also publicly uh, pressed Mike Johnson directly to say, look, take our uh, Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine funding bill up separately and let your 100 Republicans who support it and, and the 200 Democrats who support it kind of push it through. But he's on, you know, Mike Johnson's under in, intense pressure not to support it. You, you noticed that Chuck Schumer uh, was talking about all of the people who were so passionate in support of the Ukraine money there. And he briefly said speaker, and then he took that back. Mm -hmm. Because Speaker Johnson is the one who was, who was, who was not mm -hmm. uh, energetically uh, supportive of that. So this entire thing ends up kind of being caught up in the, the war the war spending as well as the the fight around all of the government spending for if people are curious by the way it's uh, the, the the agencies that would shut down would be uh, agriculture energy transportation uh, VA Veterans Affairs is a yeah. big one uh, and, and HUD which is also a big one that you know if if that's shut down for like 30 days or so uh, then you know section 8 checks stop going out section 8 checks stop going out all of the people that you know, uh, rely on either that housing or the, or or those checks. Uh, you know, those people are at uh, sig significant you know hardship. Uh, all, you know, all of it, all of it matters. But that you know, that's that's just one example of it. Uh, it I believe it's what March eighth, where 8th. where the rest of the government uh, would then shut down because this this was Speaker Mike Johnson's kind of way to get out of it, the last jam that he was in. He said, "Well, here's my." solution that's going to be a two-tier thing. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like pixie dust that you throw up. Two-tier. And yeah. you're like, oh, okay, well, that sounds interesting. Let's, let's, cool. let's try that. <laughs> and knowing all the while that the, the, the first tier was just going to be blown through. Yeah. Like that, this 20% is going down. But the next one then is the Pentagon and, and you know, the rest, the rest of the government. Uh, but yes, it's all tangled up with um, Israel, Ukraine, and, and this money for a potential war in, uh, in, China, in Taiwan over China. Uh, over you know Chinese you know, uh, you know claims of sovereignty etc. Like that that one just kind of gets brushed aside, but that's a, that's a big part of this as well. As well. Meanwhile, you've got Israeli officials who are saying we need that money yesterday. I yeah. think that was what Ron Dermer, uh, Netanyahu's kind of top lieutenant, uh, said. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't look like it's moving though. So uh, Mike Johnson, mm -hmm. she had Chuck Schumer talking about the. Ukrainian border, ostensibly talking about the Ukrainian border. Here's what House Speaker Mike Johnson said when he came out of that meeting. We believe that we can get to agreement on these issues and prevent a government shutdown, and that's our first uh, responsibility. Uh, you also heard, I'm sure, that there was um, discussion about the supplemental uh, spending package, and uh, I was very clear with the president and all those in the room that the House is actively uh, pursuing and uh, investigating all the various options on that, and we will address that in a timely manner. But again, the first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. So, Ryan, a Gallup poll uh, that came out, I think it was actually even just yesterday, found immigration uh, was the issue, the most important issue for people who were asked in this Gallup poll. 
you know, what is the most important problem in the country right now? 28% said immigration. That was higher than any of the other options. Government, economy, inflation, immigration. Again, 28%. That was an eight-point jump from the month before. So, and Trump and Biden are both actually on tomorrow, Thursday, going to the border, making trips to the border. So it makes it easier for Republicans to have that conversation. Obviously, Democrats wanted, and Mitch McConnell actually allowed them to have that little talking point when they worked out a bill with James Langford and said, here, we tried to fix the border. Republicans rejected the plan to fix the border. And so then they put the Ukraine-Israel spending by itself up for uh, House Republicans to vote up or down. House Republicans don't want to vote anything up or down unless it includes uh, border security, and their members are not worried about a shutdown because they don't think they're going to be punished in their districts on the House side for a government shutdown. Obviously, their case is made easier when you have Chuck Schumer talking about Ukraine. His biggest thing is thinking about Ukraine. Um, at the same time, though, uh, they continue to govern by, govern by a continuing resolution. I mean, this is a, just a pathetic cycle that I think speaks right into our inability to govern as a country, period, to keep on uh, funding the government by a continuing resolution. Mike Johnson, though, the reason that he's between a rock and a hard place, as people remember, one of the most important parts of the rules package uh, that in the House was passed in order to, for Mike Johnson to become speaker. They ousted Kevin McCarthy. They couldn't land on any consensus speaker candidate because their margins are so slim. And Mike Johnson agreed to what's called the motion to vacate. And people have all become familiar with this little aspect of parliamentary procedure in the last year because it's what uh, allowed Republicans to get rid of Kevin McCarthy. And he didn't want the motion to vacate to be in the rules package that you know, after 18 tries got him elected speaker. It was, it was his downfall. Then you have uh, Mike Johnson agreeing also to the motion to vacate. So basically one member, one member who's unhappy with this shutdown can bring a vote to the floor to vacate the chair. Uh, so, But Democrats could save him at that point. Democrats Which could, they've floated that they might actually do if, if he's being helpful to them. They can get some stuff out of that, although then it becomes difficult for Democrats and it becomes difficult for Republic. It becomes difficult for Freedom Caucus guys the moment one of their members, a rogue person, right. says- Because they have 219. Yeah. And you need 218 to pass legislation. They, they lost George Santos. It's even a thinner, uh, it's, it's even a slimmer majority now. So that's why, um, you know, Mike Johnson is in a very difficult position. And Ryan, I am hearing that Mike Johnson does continue to be a real person as well, not a- uh, He's an actual- Lab-created <laughs> Republican. Mike, Mike Johnson- I, Five years from now, if you ask me who the speaker was for this brief period, <laughs> Mike Johnson. I'll be like, uh, Mark Thompson? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> something. And when you're like, when somebody's like, no, I think they'll Google it. And it was Mike Johnson. I'm like, oh, that's right. It was Mike Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we do, like, that's one of the duties that we take seriously is continuing to update the viewers on whether Mike Johnson continues to exist as a real human being. And my, my read on why we're likely, it seems like, to potentially get a shutdown uh, is that I think Biden would love to change the topic of conversation uh, from how his support, unconditional support of the genocide in Gaza is costing him potentially the presidential election to look how incompetent these Republicans are. Uh, they're shutting down the government for no discernible reason. Yeah. Like I, Democrats are just salivating over the possibility of being able to say that again. And Republicans may just be dysfunctional enough to allow them 
uh, to go ahead and say it. So Democrats are going to do absolutely nothing to like get out of Republicans way on the, on this thing. Like they're going to make sure yeah. that Republicans have every opportunity to trip over their shoelaces. Yep. And shut down politics. If you're the one that's uh, in the way and you know, the media always puts Republicans as being the ones in the way, even when they have a case that I think is, uh, popular with the public. Immigration is certainly a case that's popular with the public, but even, even so, uh, voters, even if they're not even paying attention to the media, they see Republicans uh, shut down DHS. DHS is interesting right. because that's the border. It's, it's, <laughs> and, it's that fundamental contradiction in your messaging that says we're so concerned about the way that the government is handling the border that we're going to shut the government down. Well, and then, and regular people then are like, don't think that's going to help things at the border. Well, and also the media immediately will start talking about the VA with good reason. Uh, so you are yeah. always going to, you're all, if, as a Republican, you're always going to get blamed for the government shutdown because the media is not going to be sympathetic to your cause. And also because if you're the obstructionist, the public just reads obstruction as uh, the blame. You can never have that you know, nuanced discussion about the negotiations that you've been having with uh, leadership behind closed doors because those dynamics are complicated and like actually even when you follow the dynamics closely like if you read playbook every morning um and you know whatever even even if you talk to people in those circles sometimes you don't know what the truth is uh, about what leader how much leadership actually screwed you over did you screw leadership over who agreed to what so that's just never really a winning argument outside a district where you can say i'm doing this to stick it to mitch mcconnell well, well, we'll see. Going to be going to be interesting. I don't know, Ryan. I I feel like this one might actually happen briefly. Um, so that's that's yeah, my. There's so the other the reason it wouldn't happen is there's so little upside for Republicans. Well, the reason that it wouldn't happen is the same reason I think it could happen, and that's what's complicated here, which is that they don't have any good options. Yeah. So that's why we've been funding the government via CR for so long. Is that they're just like screw it. We're obviously not going to get a deal. So. CR, like poison pill, you can have like your protest vote, but that's, it's, there's, there's no way that if we vacate the chair, this goes to a place where we can fund the government because there's literally no deal yeah. to be made. And so I think that's the best case that the shutdown doesn't happen just because there's really nowhere to go afterwards, but they feel yeah. like they've exhausted their options. They vacated the chair, they got mad over the debt ceiling negotiations and they vacated the chair and now uh, they've pushed Johnson as far as they feel like they could push him. So that's where you get a motion to vacate. But everyone knows even if you do that, it doesn't fund the government. Yeah, our entire you know 200 plus year old system relies really on consensus because of all the choke points yep. uh, that are in it. And consensus is, is slowly breaking down. Like, yeah. you know, it, it peaked, say, in the 1950s with that monoculture. Uh, we still have something of a monoculture around, despite people thinking that we're all just a bunch of divided niche uh, subcultures. Uh, but it's fraying. And the more it frays, the more we're going to have these kinds of uh, problems. And I think, the, so the system's going to have to respond somehow, because there's two built-in idiotic things, which, like, when you can't get consensus, uh, there's a potential, you know, global financial crisis over defaulting. On, on the debt for no reason. Uh, and the government just shuts down and stops working and everybody goes home and then comes back a month later and gets paid for things that they didn't do during that month. And in the meantime, lots of people suffered. And I feel like as, Solves nothing. as the system continues to break down, they're going to have to be some kind of um, a redundancies built in that say like, all right, if you don't get the consensus, uh, you still get section, your, your section eight check still goes to the landlord. Or, or, or whatever, like we're still paying these basic things at some basic level. And I think maybe at some point, lawmakers will produce that 
system because it's so irrational, mm -hmm. uh, but we're certainly not there yet. So, and I think we need some, uh, the system is going to need to create a lot of pain for people before that, uh, that eventually happens. Whether it's this time or at a future time uh, remains to be seen. It's like a Kissinger, let's uh, heighten the contradictions in Chile, make the economy scream. Make a scream, yeah. yeah. Then we'll get our revolution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we'll see what happens uh, by Friday. Um, a lot on the line, and it's not looking good. So we'll continue to follow that story for everyone. We have a great guest here in studio, Ryan. That would be Gabe Shipton, the filmmaker, brother of Julian Assange. Uh, can't wait to have a conversation with him. All right, stick around for that. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. All right, we're joined now by Gabe Shipman, who's a filmmaker uh, and also the brother of Julian Assange. Uh, Gabe, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be with you again. And so you're you're an Australian, but you're here in you're here in Washington D.C., kind of uh, drumming up support uh, for your brother in the wake of his most most recent hearing, uh, which we talked about last week on on the program. Uh, we had Chip Gibbons on. People can go back and uh, watch watch that. Uh, interview if they want to understand. You, you saw him at the hearing, I gather. Yes. So how, how, was, how was the hearing from your perspective, this, this two-day affair, this kind of final battle uh, before, before the decision on extradition? Yeah, look, I, um, my impression was that the High Court judges were uh, really feeling, uh, feeling the pressure. They were on their best behaviour and trying to uh, really engage with the arguments um, in a different way that I hadn't seen before uh, when Julian... Um, you know, faces uh, these British judges. Usually they're very closed um, and um, very terse uh, towards the defence. Uh, but this time they were uh, engaging with the arguments and also engaging with the um, prosecution arguments, you know, making statements like, oh, so if Julian is extradited, does that mean any journalist in the UK uh, could be extradited? And, and the prosecution essentially had to answer Yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, the judges making these sorts of points, I, I found quite interesting in, in, in a different vibe sense. Yeah, that's huge. And I'm curious, Ryan mentioned you're here to drum up support for Julian's cause in D.C. When you talk to maybe skeptical lawmakers or staffers, uh, you're really putting a human face on this issue. But 
also, what are the arguments you find that have, you know, over the course of the last almost, you know, years and years, how, that have been most persuasive? I mean, you just mentioned the judge and the, the journalism question. That's a pretty persuasive one, especially to us journalists. But if you're talking to skeptics, and as you're talking maybe even the next week to some skeptics, what's the most powerful argument you found? Well, I, you know, it sort of changes. Everyone sort of comes at this from their own, you know, political perspective. And, uh, you know, on the, on the Democrat side, uh, press freedom resonates a lot with people, particularly exposing war crimes, mm. uh, you know, of the military-industrial com complex, you know, uh, state criminality. Uh, the, those sorts of arguments really resonate, uh, you know, with the Democrat side. And then, you know, with the Republicans, it's always First Amendment, uh, you know, freedom mm -hmm. of speech, First mm -hmm. Amendment, First Amendment rights. Uh, and that argument carries a lot of weight, uh, particularly with people like Rand Paul, uh, the libertarian-leaning uh, folks uh, on the Hill. But now, there is a resolution now, Resolution 934, before uh, in, the in the Judiciary Committee, and we're asking um, lawmakers to sign on uh, to that resolution. Uh, it's got co-sponsors like um, Jim McGovern, mm. um, Thomas Massey, mm -hmm. uh, and I think there are about eight, eight in total, and we'd like to get to that to 20. So that's my real aim uh, while I'm here in, in Washington. Fantastic. It, the, 20, the 2016 reporting that Julian Assange did has nothing to do with these, these charges. Like, this is all, uh, you know, Chelsea Manning-related uh, stuff about the, you know, the cables, uh, Collateral, collateral murder, uh, yet Democrats still hold a huge grudge against your brother for, you know, the reporting he did on the, the, on the DNC and, and on Hillary Clinton in 2016. How often does that still come up mm. now, like, what, seven, eight years later, uh, when you're talking to Democrats? Is it, does it go unspoken? Do you, do you address it? Like, how, how do you, how do you confront that? Kind yeah. of political obstacle. Yeah, that's a big one for Democrats. And we always, yeah. um, you know, we're always talking about what's actually at stake and sort of reframing, uh, reframing it um, in, in that sense, saying that this is a unprecedented espionage act prosecution uh, that could be turned against, uh, you know, Democrat media in the future, like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Do they uh, acknowledge when it's Democratic media uh, <laughs> when you? When you well, make that uh, point. I mean, I think it's pretty... I think um, they get it. Yeah, but. yeah. I, I think that it's pretty, um, you know, that they're their sort of, you know, cultural... Uh, cultural allies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I don't think anyone really denies right. that that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, and having the New York Times actually writing to President Biden, which they did, um, I think, at the end of 22, mm -hmm. uh, calling on him to drop the charges, that really helps uh, focus that argument. Um, because having them saying, hey, look, this is a threat to us. Right. Uh, you know, when we're approaching lawmakers, we say, well, you know, if there's a Trump administration down the track, uh, do you want them to have this precedent, uh, um, you know, to potentially use against these other media organisations? So I, I think sort of moving around that 2016 mm -hmm. argument and, and really getting to, you know, what's really at stake here and what this prosecution means uh, for... Um, other 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 media around the place. I think, and also what, one other argument that cuts through is that the global support now for Julian, particularly with Australia, that is one of uh, the US's closest allies, uh, has um, making this prosecution uh, very obviously scan scandalous around the world, mm -hmm. and and really talking to lawmakers here about that, how it's seen uh, by allies or or even. Uh, not allies like China or Russia, who use it often right. yes. um, uh, when they're confronted with their human rights. They can abuse. do anything they want then with the press and just point to 
Well, you guys are trying to lock up Julian Assange. Yeah, exactly. Or, so or you, you are locking him up. Yeah, and so it reduces the U.S.'s standing when, when they want to advocate for human rights causes uh, with these countries, but also with their allies now, such as Australia. And just a couple of weeks ago, the Australian Parliament uh, put through a resolution uh, that passed the Parliament, uh, over two-thirds of the Parliament voted for it in, fa in favour of it. Um, and that was calling on the United States to bring, let Julian go home. Uh, so I think those, these steps are really significant, uh, speaking with lawmakers, because there's not really an understanding of how this affects the image internationally of the United right. States. And actually, again, on the human level, your family has been very clear that you're worried about your brother's health and that his his very life is on the line in these legal proceedings. The other thing I wanted to add to that, I wanted to ask you, you know, any updates on Julian's health since the hearing, how he's doing, but also just how worried are you about a second Trump administration, given that during the first Trump administration, I think it was Michael Isikoff reported in Yahoo that Mike Pompeo contemplated an assassination plot against your brother that has to be surreal, but uh, where's your head when you think about how this could, uh, where this could go in the coming years? Yeah, well, if, if Mike Pompeo sort of ends up in this new, in, in, in a potentially new administration, I think that's really worrying, mm -hmm. uh, not just for Julian, but for, for many, many people. Uh, and yeah, th th those were very difficult times for Julian when, um, you know, Pompeo called WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence mm. uh, agency. They were able to use clandestine operations without congressional oversight against Julian and against WikiLeaks. And that's where we saw those plots uh, to kidnap Julian and to even kill him. Uh, and that's where this prosecution has come from. I think people need to understand mm -hmm. that uh, Pompeo was talking to the to the Justice Department and they, they said, well, what are you going to do with him once you kidnap him? You know, you can't just put him in a black site. Uh, just wait and we'll get some charges ready and uh, then you can take him from the embassy. So we can see the prosecution actually stemmed mm. from this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Pompeo going off the deep end uh, 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 and pursuing WikiLeaks. So it's it's really politically motivated and I think that's a really good argument for the Biden administration to, to bring this to a close because it was a, you know, Pompeo-fuelled uh, prosecution. Mm. The There's been reporting in Australia that there, there was some hope over the last several months of some type of a deal, because he is an Australian citizen. And what business is it of the United States? It's like, be like Pakistan, like extraditing me to Pakistan for violating Pakistan's media. Don't laws. give them ideas. Like, I mean, it's, <laughs> I think it is a real problem going forward for yes. journalists who write on things around the world. Uh, Carolyn Kennedy, who's our ambassador uh, to Australia and who met with a bunch of um, Australian officials, and there was some hope that there could be some deal that would come out of that, where Australia would say, look, this is not your problem, this is our problem, he's our citizen, let us handle this. Uh, yet they seem to be pushing ahead with this attempt to, to extradite him here. What, what's your understanding of the latest in those talks between Australia, this real essential ally of the United States, um, and the US? We're always... Um pushing the Australian government to do more. Uh, and I think that's why that this resolution that was passed through Parliament is important because now the Prime Minister and the diplomats have the backing, you know, not just the Australian people, who 90% want Julian to come home, but also the Australian Parliament. That's every single minister, you know, Defence Minister, um, you know, Home Affairs Minister, all, all the ministry, cabinet um, have all voted uh, to bring Julian home. So I think that's a, a real escalation, if you will, or, or like a next step for the Australian mm -hmm. government to push uh, their allies, the US and the UK, uh, to bring this to an end. In terms of 
you know, these rumored uh, deals. I think, you know, what would, what would, I, I'm not sure what a deal would, you know, would Julian plead guilty to journalism? <laughs> I think is, is, is um, you know, is that, is that a potential deal or outcome uh, that, that the Department of Justice would be happy with? I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, I think any, any sort of deal, uh, Julian, we know that if Julian comes here that, uh, that, he could potentially face a death penalty. That was mm -hmm. uh, part of the in the proceedings. Uh, the judge asked the prosecution, "Could could you rule out death penalty if Julian's extradited?" And and he could say no. And he couldn't say yes. He, 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 why why not? What's act. the what's the capital crime? The espionage. Yeah, yeah. So under the Espionage Act, yeah. there is uh, there's uh, Rosenberg's the death room for the death penalty. So the the is potential for it to be expanded. Um, and you had the Schulter sentencing just recently. Uh, where they have an all-of-life sentence, so no parole, mm -hmm. um, and, and bringing that under the terrorism, um, you know, under the Patriot Act. So there is potential for it to expand, uh, for other charges to be brought against Julian, for other publications uh, like the Vault 7 uh, 2017 mm -hmm. CIA leaks. Um, so that's that's a real concern, and um, any sort of deal would would, uh, you know, we would say Julian cannot cannot travel to the U.S. So. Now, before even going to the U.S., there are still there is still at least one other appeals process, depending on how this hearing goes. Could you talk to us, Gabe, just a little bit about what the options might be going forward to prevent the extradition after the hearing? Well, so Julian has uh, so the judges are now uh, taken leave to make their decision on, on whether they'll um, approve an appeal or, or, or reject an appeal. If that appeal is rejected. Uh, Britain could move to extradite Julian quickly. Mm -hmm. um, they will order uh, the extradition, uh, but Julian could apply to the European Court of Human Rights to have an emergency stop uh, on that extradition and then uh, put a case uh, to the European courts. But that is, um, you still have to make an application that still has to be approved. And, and, I, and I think there were 63 applications mm. uh, in the previous year for this sort of thing, and only one, uh, only one was approved by the European Court. So that is not a guarantee. Uh, that, that it will stop uh, stop his extradition. But interestingly, the European courts uh, heard Agnes Kalaman from uh, Amnesty International say, uh, just they had a briefing in, in uh, on the Hill on Monday, and she said the European courts were able to order Russia after Navalny was poisoned with the uh, Novichok, uh, that they were able to order Russia to return him uh, to Germany for treatment. So that's the sort of power the European courts have, and I don't think the United States uh, you know, would want the European courts interfering and ordering uh, the UK to return Julian to Australia. I think that would be extremely embarrassing mm -hmm. uh, for the Department of Justice. One of the one of the key questions in the appeals was the, whether or not Assange would be tortured by being placed in, in a solitary confinement here in the United States. And the US had made, you know, after they realized that was a problem for them in their case, they made some representations that they said, well, we won't do that. Those representations included a clause that said, unless we decide that we need to do that. Uh, so what was the reaction uh, from the from the judges to how the U.S. would you know, treat Assange if he was extradited? And how important is that at this point in the decision making? Uh, so the, the, it, those weren't really gone into a great deal in, in, uh, in the court um, and, and didn't form a big part of those assurances or so-called assurances that are caveated. Uh, didn't form a large part of the hearing. Uh, it was really uh, more about the political nature of, of the charges against Julian. Uh, there's a clause in the 
uh, in the um, treaty with the United Kingdom and the US that says you cannot be extradited for political uh, political charges and espionage is inherently political. So there was, there was a lot about that, uh, but the uh, prison conditions that Julian would, would face uh, didn't really come up. It was more those expanding of the charges and potential death penalty sentencing uh, that, that, that were brought up uh, in that hearing. Did, did you think the judges were kind of covering what would be a future negative ruling? Like, you know, being more open and being more reasonable people so that when they finally extradite him, they'll seem like more reasonable people? Or, or was your gut telling you that maybe the pressure was actually getting to them and they might actually kind of do the right thing? Well, yeah, I th you know, yeah, I think a lot of it is having that external, um, you know, that external facing uh, engagement and, and looking to be engaged. I think that is a very big part of it. I think you're right. Uh, and mm -hmm. the pressure and the monitoring has led them to to have to do that. You know, previously they didn't have to because, um, you know, we didn't. Have, you know, Amnesty International was there. We had people from the UN observing, as well as the German embassy, Australian embassy. A lot of eyes were on that court, uh, more so than than in previous hearings. So, uh, yeah, there there is that that uh, element to it as well that they were just uh, you know entering into this sort of performance to make mm -hmm. it seem like. Uh, that they were really going to consider it and consider it properly. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we'll see down the track when they make their decision. Uh, they, the defence has until the 3rd of March to give more information and then uh, they can make their decision any time after that. So uh, we'll see what appeal points they may allow or, or whether mm -hmm. they reject then. Last question on my end is just what can average people do to help? You know, you'd, lawmakers obviously play a big role in this. The court is, you know, is it, this fate is in the hands of a court right now. But if average people want to lend their support to the cause, help the cause, what can they do, Gabe? We've been asking people to contact their representatives about this resolution, 934, um, and ask them to sign on to that resolution, ask their representatives uh, to sign on to that. You can also go to sargedefence.org, uh, join our subscriber list, and you'll receive uh, emails about what's going on around the mm -hmm. country, uh, different act actions that you can take, um, donations, things like that. So AssangeDefence.org is a good place to go for, 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 for that sort of info. Excellent. Sounds good. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Uh, and best of luck as you make your case to lawmakers in the next yeah. week or so. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gabe. Cheers. So again, that was AssangeDefense.org. Uh, Go check, go check that out. Join their mailing list um, and tell you know tell tell your member of Congress sign 934. That's right. It's the resolution. That's the sign one. 934. Put some pressure on the Biden administration uh, to, for the once in their lives, do the right thing. That does it for us on today's edition of Counterpoints. Though uh, Ryan will have had almost two weeks by next week's show to uh, reacclimate to go. the non-fish universe. <laughs> so uh, Ryan will be back here next week, and uh, maybe you'll be a little less out of sorts. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> There's no way to be sure. <laughs> but we'll see you then either way. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. 
Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.